Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday Night Bible Study for the teen group. We're going to get started with a prayer, and then we will continue on with our book that we've been working through. Um, so let's get started with a prayer to begin. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the things that you have done for us, and Lord, we just ask for your protection and your care uh, throughout this coming week. We pray for your help to do what is right. And Lord, we ask that you'd open our, the, up your word and your thoughts for us this evening. Help us to be grateful for the gifts that you've given to us. And thank you so much for how much that you have given to us already and blessed us with in our lives. Help us to be wise. And I pray that you'd be with our leaders, each one of them of our cities and towns and counties and state and country. Help them to look to you. Help them to know you as Savior, we pray. We ask for your wisdom to reign in our lives. We thank you for what you've done for us. In your name, amen. Okay, so as you may or may not remember, seems like it's been a couple of weeks anyways, because of last week's youth retreat, we are, we are on section four of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. Um, essentially, we've come across this man, Nabil, and he has talked about his upbringing as a Muslim. Okay, Lots of different things, uh, and very devout Muslim, and what they learned. He, he had read through the entire Quran by the time he was six years old. Okay? There are not too many Christians out there who have read through the entire Bible by the time they are six years old. Okay, But his family was very, very devout, memorizing sections of it and other books that also uh, that they have involved in their religion. Um, now, a few of the things, if you recall, a few of the things that we have as... And we'll just we'll just put it up here. Muslim faith. We'll start and Christian faith. Okay. I'm gonna switch my marker because it's been very short. So if you were to if you were to look at the Muslim faith versus the Christian faith, you'd find there's lots of similarities. Anybody know some of them? For judgment? Yeah. Yes. So both of them believe in a judgment. A little different, each one, but ultimately they believe that they are going to be judged for what they do. Anything else? Pray. Okay. They both pray. How many times a day do they pray? Do you know? Five times a day. And they are always facing Mecca. All right. So they have a little different thing, uh, particularly in the Christian faith. Where are we told to pray to? Just heaven. Just God, right? In secret. There's no... There is no specific time or day laid out. Just do it, right? And do it often, it says. All right? So, what else? 
What do they believe in God? One God, okay? And Christians, what do we believe in? One God. Do they believe in Jesus? Yes, they do. What do they believe about Jesus? Okay, he's a man. And he is even a prophet, okay? And a teacher. And a prophet, and he's a really good man, and they don't really have any problem with Jesus until they get to one or two particular things that divide us and the Muslim faith, okay? So we believe in Jesus as well, but we believe other things about Jesus, okay? We believe specifically other things uh, that we'll get into tonight. Anything else? What do they believe about spiritual things? Is there things in the spiritual realm around them? Yep, yep. So they, we both believe in a spiritual realm, okay, and spiritual influences, that there are beings, not only good beings, but bad beings, okay? Okay, and they... They actually kind of, it's, it's almost like they believe on the, about the, the de devil and angel on your shoulder kind of euphemism. Uh, it's not quite that simplified, but, but that's kind of what they believe is that there is that struggle. So, Jesus is the one big thing that's different. Okay. And how about Muhammad? What about Muhammad? Anybody know who Muhammad was? He was their prophet. Okay. He was the prophet, the main prophet, according to the Muslims, of God. And they particularly call their God Allah, but it is just the name for God in Arabic, I think. Okay. Um, so... There are similarities. You have some things. Do they believe in the Bible? They do believe in the Bible, which is a strange kind of thing, right? Um, so they at least have a respect for the Bible, I'll call that. And they do believe that much of it uh, was sent from God, but they also believe, if, if you were around last week, that it has been corrupted by man. And that's what they believe about the Bible. It's been passed down, and because it has been translated and changed, etc., etc., over the years, they believe it's been corrupted. Now, they have the Quran is translated, but they learn it typically in Arabic, and they speak in Arabic, okay? And so... That is, they're saying that the Quran, Quran, okay, that the Quran actually has, it's infallible. So, what do we believe about the Bible? Is it true? How true? All true? 
mostly true. All of it. Is there anything that could maybe not be true? <laughs> okay. Here is one thing that you should know. There are texts in the Bible that are not, in, in your modern Bible, that are not in the original texts. There are portions of text. Does that shake you a little bit? Think about that for a little bit. So, does that mean that the Bible's wrong? We'll talk about it in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> because it's something to, to really know and understand what. And I'll take you one specific section, uh, and we can talk about that, that is brought up as a very common thing. But if you hear and read section four, okay, and you can either do it on our feed on Instagram, or you can uh, find another way and read the book, get the book. If you really want the book, um, you know, come to us and ask, or you can get it on your own. It's available just about anywhere. So, um, so these are some of similarities and a few differences, okay, that are in there. The differences are major, but the similarities are enough that you can approach a Muslim with respect and talk to them. All right, you have some footing to work on. What you need to understand, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, is where are the edges of that footing and what is critical, but how do you approach a person? This is not only true. Now, do any of you know Muslims? Run across them? Yeah? Okay. So there may be some, okay, in your communities out there, wherever they are, but if you end up going off to college somewhere, or you end up going into even one of the, I'll call it bigger cities around here, just Buffalo, just Rochester, there are many. Okay? You'll run into it regularly. Um, so understanding what this is about, and understanding as we also go into the book of Revelation, you'll see a dovetail piece on Sunday mornings, a dovetail piece about uh, the Muslim faith or what people believe to be the Muslim faith um, as we approach that and look at that and how, how that may fit into the world. Okay, So that's a, another piece for Sunday morning up to come. But essentially you've got some footing to work on. So let's, first of all, let me go back and make sure I have gotten to cover a couple things I wanted to. Last time we talked about the believability and reliability of the Bible. So we have told you always that the Bible is reliable because it is. But you should know more than that. You should not accept that, okay, from me or anybody. You should figure it out that there is, because if you go online and you look at things, you'll find 
thousands of things disclaiming that very same thing. All right, so you should know it and nail it down in your head and understand what you believe first. So one of the reasons we do these types of things is, so what do you believe? Can you really believe it? If there was any time that faith is important in our lifetimes, now is the time to understand what you believe because things are being very separated now, okay? There's, there, there are very clear lines being drawn in this world today. And you're on one side or the other. And you may not feel it, but the knife is cutting right down the middle, and you're going to land on one side or the other. So the question is, what do you believe? What will you stand for? Right? What is important to you? Not what's important to me, but what's important to you. And do you believe, and do you really know what you believe? Can you defend what you believe? All right? It's a weak believer who cannot defend what they believe. Now, oftentimes, it takes a good challenge for you to have to look at it and figure it out. But you should know more. Okay? You should dig in and figure it out. I can only teach you so much on your own. You've got to learn some. You've got to say, well, it's important enough for me to know something. All right. So the reliability of the Bible starts with how many do we know about the books of the Bible? How many were there? Are there? 66. Is that all the books of the Bible that there ever were? Nope. <laughs> okay. So what happened to the other books? <laughs> Poof. There are some that are still out there claiming to be books of the Bible. So, who chose these books then? These 66 books. Now, they're written by multiple, many different authors, okay? Many different authors have, have written these books. And it was written over a period of hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, okay? So you can look up all of that and see how many authors and who wrote what and where they came from. And you should know that some of these books were passed down. Some of the information was passed down okay, from generation to generation. Other ones were written eyewitness. Okay? So the first five books of the Bible were written by, do you know who? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The very first book is written about creation and all the stories that lead up to bringing in the Israelites into Egypt. Moses wasn't there yet, okay? So he wasn't part of that. He wasn't there for creation. So... One way or another, God got the message to him. And he was the first to write those things down. Okay? So, the Hebrews passed those stories down. Did God have a direct connection to Moses? Well, we know he did. We know he specifically spent much time with him. Did he tell him those stories at that time? Maybe. But we don't know the exact 
moments that they happened. All right? So that is the Old Testament. Does anybody know what the Old Testament was written in originally? Language. Boy, we got some learning to do here. Hebrew and? No. Chaldee. Oh, yeah. That, too. Right? Because... <laughs> because... Many of them were written right directly by the Hebrews, okay? And some, like the book of Daniel, was written by a Hebrew, but where was he? He was in captivity under King, ba King of Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar. And what was... He had to learn a different tongue, okay? This was considered kind of sort of a universal language in the old world, in those olden days, okay? Then what happened to the world that made a change? How about the New Testament? It's in Greek. What happened? Why isn't it in Hebrew? Aren't they about the Hebrews? Somebody took the world over and wrecked it all and made it Greek. Alexander the Great. Yeah, good old Alex. Yes. <laughs> Alexander the Great. There he is. He took it over, okay, and he commonized the Greek language. Really, though he fought and conquered, it was not like Rome. Rome fought and conquered and left an army and said, pay taxes, right? The Greeks fought and conquered, but they didn't leave an army. They left behind their culture. Okay? And when they left behind their culture, everything became Greek. So when Jesus comes along, what, what culture does he live in? Sort of. Except a new, new dog came in town. New sheriff. Who's that? Rome, right? Because Rome took the world over again. And what was their common language? Latin. Latin. Oh, man. So you will find many of the uh, original manuscripts were either the very original written in Greek, but not too long thereafter. Latin was a, a lot of early, um, and I don't know what, there's, there's many names for the old one, the Codex something, I can't remember the name of them, but Latin, okay, early. Not original, but early. Trans, uh, was translated from the Greek into the Latin. So, when Jesus was there, the Greek language was everywhere. It was the common language of the world because of Alexander the Great. Except the Romans came in and sort of punched everybody out and said, here, you're doing what we want you to do. But the culture had already been changed, all right? All the way around the Mediterranean Sea, which was the known world at the time. So here we are, we have this, this, these books that kind of get throughout all this history, gets thrown into there. And the question is, okay, most people don't have too much issue with the Old Testament. That's probably because they don't really read and study it too much, 
and there's a lot of prophecy, but what happens in the New Testament that they have an issue with? That's, that's one of the main key points. In general, Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, and one other thing really bugged people. Besides his life, his death, and his resurrection, one more thing about Jesus really bugs people. Not the miracles, because there's been lots of people that do miracles, but you're, you're coming down the right track. Closer. What's his origin? He's, he, he was God. He claimed to be God. Okay? And when he claims to be God, that really turns a lot of people off. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You could be a good teacher, you could do miracles, you could be from God. But you claim to be God, and that's a different story. Lots of teachers came along all the way that were human that, that did miracles, did things. I mean, I, uh, Elijah and Elisha did miracles, raised people from the dead, okay? But when it came down to it, they never claimed to be God. That's one of the key differences is that he comes and he says, I am God. And that's where the Muslim faith splits off and says, no way. No way. There is one God. And he's Allah. And not this Jesus. Okay. In fact, Muhammad, in their estimation, is better than Jesus. Muhammad is the greatest prophet of God. Okay, And the Bible is a lesser book to them. Because they say, well, all of this happened, and man changed this book. And so because it's not right anymore, we can't just follow that one. We're going to follow the Quran, which they passed down in Arabic, generation to generation to generation, and it's perfect. Okay, Is that true? Well, we'll see that later, one way or another. All right, but what you need to understand here is the Bible. The very first footing is the Bible. Reliability. So if it's all these different authors and all these different places and all this time that passes over it and multiple languages and somebody put it together back in around, I don't know, 300 AD or so, they put this all together and said, this is the Bible. Why do you believe it? That's the question. Why do you believe it? Now, I'm going to say this. Many of the people that put that book together, it wasn't just one guy that stood up and said, here's the books I think should be. Are there other Gospels? Hmm? There are Gospels that claim to be the Gospels. There's something called the Gospel of Mary. There's something called the Q Gospel, okay? Other ones that they have found, now whether they are legitimate or not, there were many books that came out, okay, around that era that they say 
just were not truthful or that didn't follow exactly or they had heretical doctrine in them. Okay, so they didn't agree with the things that Jesus said. Right? So how about, let's just go with the, the main four trouble books is the Gospels. Gospels are written during Jesus' life or after Jesus' life? After. What's the earliest written Gospel? Anybody know that? It was, I think, 20 years or so after Jesus died, I think. Don't quote me on the exact date, but it was the book of Mark. First one. What's the latest Gospel? John, book of John, okay? And that's written somewhere around 90 AD. These are written by eyewitnesses or people that interviewed eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Okay? Who's Mark? You ever heard of him? He's the guy who lost his clothes. I missed that verse, didn't you? <laughs> In the Garden of Gethsemane that night, when everybody ran, he ran and lost his clothes. Must have hung up on a branch or something, okay? <laughs> John Mark was what, they, was what they called him, or Mark, okay? And they believed him to be Peter's nephew. Hanging around, as there always were, extra people. Now, every person isn't written down in every story, but he in particular has uh, a couple little things written down that he was there. He watched some things. Did he understand everything? Nobody understood it at the time it happened. But after Jesus was resurrected, they began to know and understand and preach things that they never got while Jesus walked on earth, okay? Now, when John comes along, his gospel talks very detailed about things. What, what is the one thing about John that was true about him that was not true about any other disciple? He got old, that's true. So everybody else tended, all the other disciples died, or all the 12 apostles, except for John. He didn't die on his, uh, of a martyr, Okay, he died of older age. What did he witness personally that no one else did? The death of Jesus, right? Everybody else ran away. John went to the cross. And how do we know that? Because Jesus talked to him while he was on the cross. And he said, you're going to take care of my mother now, right? Behold, my mother, this is your mother now, essentially, is what he said. Please take care of her. All right, because Jesus' mother and some other women were at the cross along with John. So John has that. So John has very specific details at the cross that nobody else does. And they are some of the most detailed pieces of, of what we know about his death. Okay, so you have all this here, and lots of people don't. Say, well, they, they, 
can be wrong, right? So how many of you believe that Homer, not Homer Simpson, okay, <laughs> Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey? Something like that? Okay. He did. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, okay, and they are the great epic stories. And within them, there are pieces of culture that they take out of, of them, and, and they say, well, this is what Homer wrote, these stories. And we know that Homer was a real guy, and we're, we know that he wrote these things. Okay? No one questions that. I think there are less than like 75 copies anywhere within several hundred years of Homer ever writing. Less than 75 copies. Okay? Even fragments of copies. This is the most written down book, ancient manuscript that they have, except the Bible. I think the Bible has somewhere around 22,000 fragments and copies. But we're not quite sure if it's historically accurate or if they changed a whole bunch. Except when you look at them and say, we have full New Testaments written down from 300 A.D., there are portions, books, because they remember, they weren't in one place until 300 AD, right? But there are portions of books that they have found, or entire pieces, or entire small books, okay? All the way up through. Original Gospels, copied, sent along year after year. And... What the claim is, is, okay, well, that's fine, but over time, people make mistakes. People mess up. Things get changed. People don't like the way this says this, so they change something else. And they claim that for a very long time, and they said, well, we don't have, we don't have the truth that all these things are actually accurate, all this New Testament, Old Testament stuff. So... There had been a claim for a long time of that until something came along called the Dead Sea Scrolls. At the time, there was a boy playing ball over next to the Dead Sea, and he kicked his ball on some sort of mountainside-type area he was playing with. His ball disappeared, and he went up to find it, wherever he was, and it led him into this crevice, and the crevice led into a place where they found a cave. And in the cave, they found all kinds of original manuscripts that they've called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and they are many complete Old Testament books, thousands of years old from, in fact, I think they were the oldest for many, and they thought, well, here's our chance. We're going to show them that this has changed and changed and changed and changed over the years, and all these translations have messed the Bible up. But when they found them, they found the opposite. They were word for word. 
one after another after another, okay? Exact copies of them. Because when God wants to protect his word, he does. That's all there is to it. Even if he hides them in a cave that a little boy finds, and I think they found them, Dead Sea Scrolls were sometime around the early 1900s when they found them. Okay, so they had been hidden away in a cave for thousands of years, literally. And they dated them, and they did all sorts of things, but when they opened up these clay jars that they were sealed up in, they found them. And obviously, somebody hid those there so that they wouldn't get stolen or taken or whatever. Maybe they were being persecuted at the time. Either way, um, they found they were accurate. And that's what they found with all these Old and New Testament books is that there's accuracy goes along. So why, what do you believe? Well, you either believe it's accurate or you don't. Now, I told you there was a passage. If you go to Mark chapter 16... Because these are the kinds of things that people will bring up about your faith. Mark chapter 16. If you go to the very last section, verse starting, ending at verse number 8, Verse number 1 through 8 are in all of the manuscripts. But in a lot of the earlier manuscripts, verse 9 through 20 are not there. Okay? So it talks about Mary Magdalene, whom he cast out seven devils. Okay? It talks about, if you keep going down, oh, I'm sorry, it was not, not 9 through 20. It was verse 16 through 20. Um, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these shall be the signs that follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and shall recover. Okay, and it goes on. Those are doctrines that people have said, poisonous snakes and you pick them up and you don't get hurt. Well, it's true. It's happened in places. It may not exactly be what God's intent was, and it seems as though that last section is not in all the earlier manuscripts. Okay, So you get the story of Jesus and his resurrection and then they kind of like tie this all together. So is that a true thing? Does that then say, well, maybe all the Bible's not true? Except that we know that. It's not in the earliest manuscripts, right? Because we have the earliest manuscripts. So can you say, well, that may not be. You, you know, it's not like it's a hidden thing from people. And you'll find in some Bibles, it'll have a note in the side. Not in all manuscripts or not in early manuscripts. There'll be a note in there. Okay, they put in there for completeness, uh, but maybe not. So these are things you should know. But should that shake you? No, you should understand that to put this all together in history and to give you the opportunity to have a clear picture, even today, after thousands of years, to make your own choice is God's ability to do it. He's, he's gone through time and he said, I will give you here as a 
teenager today a choice in what you decide. And you can find information and you can look them up and you can decide. Right? Do I have this under control? Yeah, God's got it under control. God knows. God knows these things. All right? So those are things that you should know and you should look up on your own. So what we're going to go with is, at this point, you can spend many, many days doing this, and you can look at all the different texts, and you can look at, compare different Latin and Greek, and do a whole bunch of different things. But we're going to go with the Bible is reliable. Okay? We're going to start on that foot. Okay, now you can go and dig, but here's what you need to know. We're getting back to the Muslim faith. We have three things that we believe that the Muslims don't. One thing is Jesus' death. Next thing is Jesus' resurrection. And the next thing is Jesus claims to be God. So in order to look at that, this is going to be next week, Jesus claims to be God. We're going to look at that uh, for sake of time, and it's also the next section in the book. We're going to look at these two today, and we're going to say, okay... If you believe the accuracy of the scriptures, then you're going to go into the scriptures and you're going to look and say what happened. If it's the most copied and the most accurate historical manuscript that we have, then you ought to believe it. If you believe any history anyone's ever told you, they all come from other historical books, old manuscripts. So if you don't believe any history of the entire world, okay. But if you choose to believe all the other history, then you ought to believe what we have the most manuscripts for and the best manuscripts for, which is the Bible. Okay? By hundreds of times more. Okay? You can go to places like the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which is an amazing place, you can go and see some of these manuscripts. People have them in their private collections. Okay, Now, they're not going to let you take it out and unroll it, but they do have portions and sections of it that you can look and you can see them all sealed up. into They, they exist, Okay, and they are protected and kept for the fact of integrity to say this, these are here. We have them. We have the proof from the beginning. Right? So we're going to look at that and we're going to say, what does the Bible say about Jesus' death? First of all, Muslims don't believe that he died on the cross. They, of course, believe he died eventually. He was a man. right? But they don't believe he died on the cross. They believe that he was put on the cross and taken down before he died. Taken to a tomb and healed 
and then got up three days later. Okay. <laughs> this is called the swoon theory, all right? All right. It is, it is, and you will find books written about it, okay, on what they did. Some people believe out there that they drugged him to do this, okay? There are, you will find many, many beliefs out there. So here's the question. You, you know, if you're going to believe in this, then you need to know what you believe. Again, let's go to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to see what the Bible says about it. And you will find that there, there is a verse within the Koran that states that the Bible is accurate. But like any sect or religion, you'll find some people believe in that totally. And some people swear, well, not every single one. And they say, well, it's corrupt here, and it's corrupt there, and it's corrupt here. Okay? But you'll find it's a place to begin to talk to somebody about. All right, Matthew chapter 27, verse number 50 through 54, please. Nice and loud, please. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent and twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rose. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto them. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Alright. So is that proof that Jesus died? What's written? Show me. Okay, he gave up his spirit. What if they said, Well, that's not really what that means? <laughs> And that's a, good, that's a good question back. And what if they said is, well, he just, like, gave up. And he went unconscious. <laughs> okay, so you say, well, that might not be then the exact, if, if that's what they're claiming that to be, although I think you probably would go back to the Greek at that point, find something called a Greek interlinear notation Bible, New Testament, um, and it will tell you word for word what the Greek means. And you can look up the Greek words and, and find out exactly translated what they mean. All right? But if you're just working in the, in the New Testament here, there are more things. So if we go to Matthew 28, which we'll look at his resurrection, what does it say? Chapter 28, verse 2 through 7. Please. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and said, His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, the people did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. All right. So did I go? Did we get through the 
go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Oh, well, okay. Okay. <laughs> then he's, yeah, he's dead, right? He's risen from the dead. He goeth before you in Galilee, there shall you see him. Okay? Lo, I have told you. All right. So, though it may not say it in the words that we're familiar with there, it's pretty clear in the next chapter that the angel says he was dead. Okay? So, if you were to look in the book of Mark, you'd see a similar thing. Mark chapter 16. Back to that famous chapter. We're going to go through verse 3 through 6. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they lay him. Okay, so what does it say? Well, he was crucified, and being crucified, he is now risen. Okay. Does it say he was dead? Maybe not specifically, although crucifixion. Crucified is pretty, pretty well dead. Now, thing to think about is this. A thing to be able to, to say is, how often and accurately do you think the Roman soldiers knew that people were dead? Do it every day, right? <laughs> I think I think you have a pretty experienced killer standing there, an executioner, right? If they don't quite get them dead all the time, they stab them. They stab them, right? They make sure they're dead. And why do they make sure they're dead? Because they need 100% success, right? <laughs> right? In this job, they're looking for 100% success. Because what happens to them? No good for them, okay? There's no messing up on being a Roman soldier, right? There was no room for that. Death penalty was pretty much anything you did that was egregious. You're done. Okay? And if you can't do your one job of killing people, all right? So they made sure. They made sure, exactly. All right? So Luke chapter number 24 Chapter 24, verse 5 through 8, please. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. All right, so here it is. You're looking for a living guy, or you're looking for him, but he's not here. He was dead, but he's not anymore. He's alive now. So there in the Bible claims that he has been risen in each of these Gospels. Each of the four Gospels claim it. And so you can't say, well, there's just one. They didn't really mean that in one of the Gospels, because they say it in a little different way in every single Gospel. 
and they agree. That's something you need to be able to do is be able to look at the parallels in, in books, in the Gospels. And those people way back when, in 300 AD, when they looked at the books of the Bible, they looked for parallels. They looked for agreeances. In most New Testament books, you will find Old Testament references. Now, the Old Testament was very well established by that point at 300, but remember, Christianity is very new at that point. So the New Testament is, well, all these people are writing books, right? Anybody can write a book, right? Right? Anybody can write a book. So you throw something out there and you say, here, here's the truth. This is what I saw. Is it true? Does it agree with Scripture, the old Scripture that everybody has accepted up to that point? So within most of the New Testament books, you will find that there are references back to the Old Testament. Throughout them, actually. Paul's writings are full of them. Jesus uses references quite often. So if you were to look in your book, in your Bibles, different ways that they annotate the things are a lot of times they'll do like either a bold print or they'll do a reference in the in the edge where Jesus talks about and refers to an Old Testament verse. Okay? Or they'll do like all capital letters or something like that. Every Bible's a little different. But many times they'll show that so they say, look, this agrees. This agrees. It ties together with the Old Testament. So that was one method that was used to show agreement with the New Testament and where other ones did not have that or did not agree. Okay? So that was one, one piece of it. All right. So let's turn to John as we see the last gospel. And to be able to look at it and compare John chapter 19 as we look at Jesus on the cross. This is actually one of the bigger ones that there is a struggle with. Verse number 30 through 34, please. John 19, 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forth came thereof blood and water. He saw that it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith truly that he might believe. Okay, so dead, right? <laughs> dead, and and how dead? Well, the soldiers say he's dead. So why did they break their legs? So that they can't push themselves up. Right, because because in order to exhale in the position that they are nailed on the cross with. They have to push themselves up to exhale, okay? So as they stop pushing themselves up, they're, they're dead, okay? That, that's where they come to the point where the, these people are dead. They have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of people die. 
All right? The Romans were very famous for this. This is not the first place or time that they ever did it. The Roman army, when they took over cities, there were cities that they cut down every single tree in the whole city and crucified people. And they just, all along the road, left them to die. Okay? These people understood what to do. Nobody got down. Okay? It, it was, you were done. And what they did before, which talks about the flogging, and you've, you've probably heard of this with the, the, the bits of metal and bone in there. The idea was this. It was done so many times that most of the time they, they wanted it to wrap around the front of them, okay? As they would whip around, the, the bits would wrap around the front, and they would keep tearing and tearing and tearing, literally until people's guts fell out and died before they even did it, okay? Now, that's why Jesus is so weak when he gets to, he can't carry the cross, Okay? He has been particularly beaten to some very, very deep level. And even before that, remember he sweat blood in the garden. Now, that is such a high-stress thing that happens to people. People don't survive that. Just that alone kills people. So Jesus is not weak to begin with, but he is weak from the whole process. All right? He's been on trial for hours standing he's been beaten multiple times and finally he's taken to be literally tortured before he's put on the cross okay so when he is ready he gives up his life not before but when everything is done and all the scriptures are fulfilled now they don't break his legs because he has stopped pushing up and down but what did they do and what came out? Water and blood. So there are two medical explanations. And these are things you can study into and look at in a deeper way. Um, when a body dies, so one of the explanations is this. When a, when a body dies during rigor mortis, okay? And I can't spell that word, rigor mortis. Um, we'll say that. Okay. Rigor mortis. Um, the blood separates. And you have to be dead before this to happen because your heart pumps it and keeps it mixed. Okay? But it separates into basically um, serum, which appears to be a water-like substance. Okay? You've probably seen it if you get a wound and you try to get it to stop. Okay? And you'll get that watery something that kind of shows up there, okay? It's where it's stop and flow, right? That's where it stops, and that's why it clots there, all right? So essentially, it's clotting in your whole body, sort of, and it's separating the blood from the serum. So it stops it from flowing. The serum mixed together keeps it. So that's one thing. When the body dies, you get blood and serum or blood and water. Okay, coming out. The other option that there is, there's two options, um, is when you have congestive heart failure or complete heart failure, your heart no longer is doing its job and around it collects this serum, this, this 
water, okay? So when they stab him, out comes both separate substances, and they know he's dead. Okay? And that's the reason that John writes it down. There's no question about it. That's, that's how they know. And you have professional killers there who have said, yep, he's dead. He's done. Okay? So, is he dead? Yes. Is he alive again? Yes. Let's go to John chapter 20, verse 4 through 9, as the last piece. We've looked at it in the other Gospels, how it says he was dead and is alive. Chapter, four, or chapter 20, verses 4 through 9, please. Alright, so here it is. He is gone. And it says in there, he is risen from the dead. Now, there's still theories of, well, what if these people are all lying? Okay, can they? So, okay, we'll say this is a book written back in near the time of Jesus, okay, by an eyewitness. John is an eyewitness. And what if he is lying about this? What if all the disciples are lying about the whole thing? Well, first of all, there are historical references in other places, all right? You can look up things like the works of Josephus, Flavius Josephus, okay? He is a historical author that wrote down the history of the Jews. And he has references to Jesus within his book. Now you'll find just as many people that say, well, there couldn't be true that he has these references and it's a, we don't believe that text, as you have others that say, yes, we believe it. But there it is, there's a manuscript written just about the time, I think he was born in 37 AD, okay? And he wrote and took history from eyewitnesses. Every biography ever written is written by either an eyewitness or someone who wrote it. And we don't say, well, that's not accurate. Right? You say, that's accurate if I check facts. You look at a biography. What if I write a biography on Abraham Lincoln? Does that mean that it's not true? Because I wrote it today? If I have my facts right... It can be true, right? So things we accept normally as, okay, this is how this works. You can have it accurate or you can have it not accurate. If Jesus wasn't dead, wouldn't they have found something that would have, someone else would have written something? Well, isn't that true, right? <laughs> right? So there are other ones. Tacitus talks about his death under Pontius Pilate. Okay, that's a Roman guy, not a, not a Jewish guy, but a Roman guy that wrote about 
the burning of Rome and wrote about other things that happened, okay? Um, he was a historian, early historian that wrote about that. And he talked about Jesus. It was well accepted that that's what had happened. And it was told to him by eyewitnesses. Okay, and so he wrote down the history of these things. Yes, would people have written down other things? Seems like that would happen. If you were... Here's the thing. If you had this lie that you were all coming together and you all somehow agreed, how long do you think that would last? Not, not long, right, before somebody breaks in this whole thing. How about when it gets to the point where you're brought to your death? You believe this thing? Yeah, people are out, right? At that point, like, well, if you believe in Christ, we're going to kill you. If you believe he died and resurrected, we're going to kill you. And at that point, the people who know they've been living a lie, right, for their whole life, say, truthfully, let me go, okay? I'm going to tell you the truth, right? But we see that many of these people died for what they witnessed, right? Eleven, roughly, 11, I think all the disciples except for John died in some way for what they believed, okay? John was, he was... Uh, he was banished to an island, okay, and he ended up writing the book of Revelation. It's one of the reasons he stayed alive, okay, because God had a different plan for him. But either way, if it's a lie, where's the body? Don't you think there were enough enemies in that town to have found that out? You can't hide a body very well, okay? And everybody knew there were Roman soldiers guarding it. There was not a soldier in all the disciples. They were fishermen. And there were professional soldiers, armed soldiers, guarding the tomb. Okay? So, if, if it was a lie, we'll say somebody somehow paid off the Roman soldiers to do that. First of all, they would have been killed for what they didn't do. All right, for a few bucks, that was probably not a good plan. And second of all, who left the grave clothes there? If you're going to take a body, you don't fold up the grave clothes, right? You just take it, especially after three days. Might not smell too good at that point. You just want to get rid of it, right? Do whatever you're going to try to do with it. All of these questions come along when you start to say, well, maybe it doesn't really make sense. And maybe, okay, maybe all these people are lying, but that just doesn't really fit with what happened in history. Why is this still real? All right? Even more than that, and that's where you have to look at people's lives. You look at a guy like Paul, historically written down. Paul hated the Christians. Paul killed Christians. Paul saw Jesus, and all of a sudden he's a Christian. Why would he do that if it was a lie? He doesn't even believe in those people. He never saw the resurrection, but he saw Jesus. Okay, So there are many, many different proofs and logical things you can talk about with that. John the Baptist... 
Hebrew, he talks about Jesus and talks about him being the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist is written down in many other history books. Okay, So either you say, well, all the history must be wrong and all the books we ever learned must be wrong. And everything everybody ever wrote down was a lie. Or maybe the Bible just could be accurate. And maybe I should look a little more into what it means. Believe it a little bit more. Don't take it for, from me, but learn about it. Now, very convincing thing about those disciples, right? All those disciples that died. That's a pretty convincing thing. But here's one thing I want to leave you with. The most convincing thing you can do. If you know somebody and you can say, well, I know all about this reliability of the Bible. I learned about that. I can tell you about Jesus and his death and resurrection. You can do that, but you cannot do that to start with, with most people. You don't approach most people that way because they think you're one of those crazy Christians. You're just a wacko. Why do they think that? Because they don't know you. Right? You make a judgment about people immediately. So what you need to do is this. You need to build relationships with people. That's the most important thing you can do for witnessing to somebody. Build a relationship. Your life is a bigger witness to anybody if you live like you believe. If it's changed you, if it's made something different out of you, if you live like what you believe, you know the fruits of the Spirit? John, Ephesians 5, through 26, if you were to turn there, do you know them? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness goodness, gentleness, control. Okay? So, you know those things, right? Because you learn them, put them in your head. If your faith is real, then they start to come out of you. God works in you. That's what real faith is, is to know that God is doing those things inside of you. Those things, love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest, are not naturally human. Go and check it out. Outside, you'll find people angry and mad. In Walmart, you don't have to go far, okay? Just find those people that do not have patience or peace or kindness or gentleness on their mind. It is about me and me only. So if your faith is strong enough in your life to make those things come out of you, to change you, to make you someone different, then you will be a great witness to people around you. When you look at the book, if you've not got a chance to listen to Jacob read them on our, or, uh, on our feed, or if you want to read it yourself, you can see in section 4 the reason that he turns and finds Christ is because he has a friend. And the friend, for multiple years, is just kind to him. Just treats him like a normal person. Messes around with him. Picks on him. Just is nice. And isn't pushy. So you can know and fill your whole brain with everything. All the knowledge in the world usually will not make the change in somebody. The fruits of the Spirit 
exhibited in your life will make a change. That's what will do something different. Okay? And that is one of his main points in the book, especially section four, is without a friend that loved God that just treated me like a friend, I would never have come to Christ. I would have never known. I wouldn't have been interested because to him, it would have all been fake. You could you can argue till you're blue in the face about everything, but until it's real to that person, what you do and who you are have to be real. I have to be real in my life. If I'm a jerk most of the time, nobody's going to come to me and ask me about things. right? But if I make those efforts to have mercy and kindness and love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, okay, if I have those things and I really have love towards people and have let God change me, then when those opportunities come and I'm ready, then real changes happen. That's the opportunity God wants you to be ready for. And that's what Nabil talks about in this last section of the book. All right? So next week we will go over Jesus' claim to be God. Okay? and what he struggled with with that and uh, go to that next section. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us and have a great evening.